Hello everyone, it's Craig Wessels here from A Yank on the Footy and it's the 23rd of November. This week I am going to be bringing you a rebroadcast of the 10th episode of the podcast. This one was released back in March of 2020, right about the time that we were all learning a new term, that term, COVID-19. Of course, in just a few hours, the NAB AFL draft will be starting, and while that's going on, and I'm going to be listening to it in my car, I'll be on the road en route to go visit my son for a couple of days uh, down in the state of Virginia, where he is a military officer, and I guess I'm going to be meeting uh, his uh, girlfriend for the first time, and interestingly enough, uh, you know, I'll be the first family member to be meeting her, and my wife has instructed me, well, let's see, how can I put this? She said, don't be you. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know how to be anybody but me, but we shall see what happens. So the reason I'm uh, going back and looking at uh, episode 10 again, and if you haven't listened to this one in a while, or you haven't listened to this one at all, you're going to want to go back and take a listen to this, because it is something that demonstrates the interconnection between sports here in the United States and what was at the time the VFL. Because uh, for those of you who've been following footy for a long time, the VFL back in the 1980s was in many ways struggling financially. Uh, this was before it's going to become the dominant you know, nationwide league, the AFL. And they had people who came here to the U.S. to try to explore how some of the different leagues here functioned. And I believe they met with people in the NFL, but they also spent a lot of time talking to a gentleman by the name of David Stern, who would later become the longtime commissioner of the National Basketball Association. And Stern talked to them about the whole process of the salary cap that was used in the NBA. Uh, so, you know, And this is where the salary cap that is now, or at least the idea or the concept of the salary cap, that is now part of the AFL kind of grew from this, from this, these conversations that were taking place here in, in the U S between representatives of the VFL and, uh, the NBA, and also to an extent, uh, the NFL, and I believe even the NHL, the national hockey league was involved in this conversation as well. But one group they didn't talk about was major league baseball. And for those of you that don't know my background, I'm, I'm 58 years old, so I'm, I wouldn't call myself a senior citizen yet, but I'm uh, eligible for some of those senior discounts as of this point in time, although I'm still in denial about it. But I've been a baseball fan my entire life, and I grew up following a club that was a perennial loser. Um... I don't know the best way to make a comparison here because I don't want to upset anybody, but uh, think of the footy club that struggled, did not do terribly well. Well, I guess, you know, we could say, you know, Melbourne had a little bit of a gap there up until this year uh, where they never quite got over the hump. Uh, but I was, I was a fan, and I guess in still in the periphery, I guess I still am a fan of the Cleveland Indians. But I've not watched an inning of baseball in two years. And I believe that Major League Baseball, and this is my opinion, and if you're a baseball fan, you may have a different opinion than I do, but that's one of the reasons why I'm doing a podcast is to share my views and get other people's insights, so I'd love to hear from you about this. I am 
discouraged by what Major League Baseball is doing to itself. I think that it is, it's trying to fit into boxes that it doesn't belong in. You know, I think we can safely say that in, in many instances, um, attention spans of people have become shorter. And I'm looking at my iPhone here in my right hand. We've become, uh, maybe slaves aren't the right word, but we've become uh, addicted to these little glass rectangles that are in front of our faces, whether it's a computer screen, a camera, a phone, or you know, a cell phone or something of that nature. And our attention spans are not very lengthy anymore. Well, baseball is, in many ways, since there are similarities between it and cricket, it's in many ways a cerebral game. It's a game that does not always happen in a timely fashion, or in a quick fashion, I should say. But it's something that allows people to pause and reflect, well, and to think about the game and to tell stories about the game and things that they've witnessed and things that they've encountered and discussing discussing events of, you know, the past of, about great players or terrific plays and things of that nature. But what Major League Baseball is doing at the present is trying to figure out ways to speed the game up to try to get it to fit into a much smaller window of time, a much smaller parameter, if you will. And that worries me a little bit. And that's one of the many things that does worry me. Uh, but, you know, so they, they made some changes, I guess, this year for double headers when they were playing back-to-back games where they changed them from nine-inning games to seven-inning games. And it sounds like that's going to be going back to a nine-inning game in double headers next year. I think that was a one-year experiment, but I could be wrong about that. But one of the other big issues that, that I have, and this is why I'm talking about this with episode, uh, episode 10, is the lack of a salary cap in baseball. The uh, clubs can spend ostensibly as much money as they want on their roster of players. The teams can. Now, again, in baseball, the teams are owned by a millionaire, or not a millionaire, a billionaire owner or a handful of owners who have bought the club for many, many millions of dollars. Now, they make back huge sums of money in television contracts. Uh, Each major league club has some sort of a TV deal with a local television network. And most of these are going to be like what we call cable television or um, a streaming service of some sort to to air their games. And then they sell a lot of advertising. And what you know about baseball is baseball plays a 162 game schedule. So there are lots of opportunities to sell advertising. There are lots of opportunities to have these games on, on television. So these, these team owners, you know, will, will reap huge amounts of rewards from these contracts. And of course, the larger the city you live in, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, um, the larger the, in, in most cases in Houston, the larger the television contract that you can get because you can demand that because your advertising base in terms of who you're going to be advertising to is significantly higher. It's going to be higher than a city like Pittsburgh or Detroit or Cleveland, you know, cities who were in what we call the Rust Belt, which were part of the industrial heartland of the United States, which have in many cases industrialization has begun to die off in this part of the country where I live. Now, there are some limitations. They, they 
have a threshold, meaning that if you spend more than a certain amount, you have to pay what's known as a luxury tax. And the thought process with that luxury tax is, and is that any of that money that's collected will then be distributed to the clubs who are on the lower socioeconomic scale, the lower end of the scale, which the ones that are not all that wealthy in terms of the clubs, mainly because of their location, the city that they happen to be in, the amount of revenue that they're able to bring in from the stadium or from their television advertising, that type of thing. You know, so, you know, the New York Yankees, the New York Mets, the Los Angeles Dodgers have massive television contracts. The Boston Red Sox have a massive one. The Houston Astros, a massive one as well, where they bring in, I would safely say, not even tens of millions, but maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars every year or every few years on that contract to locally broadcast their games. And, of course, you're also making revenue by selling tickets and concessions and that sort of thing at the stadium. But here's the rub. So if, you know, if a team goes above the threshold, and the, the thresholds were, um, I believe that the most recent threshold was set up to where if they went above a, uh, I believe it was, and it, this, this is, you might want to sit down because this is going to be a staggering number here, okay? If they went over spending for one team, a team of basically 25 players and I guess really 15 more that it would be part of their minor leagues that are, but are still on their major league, um, what they call a 40-man roster. Uh, if they go over $210 million for that one team, if they go over that, then they have to pay a luxury tax. And I think it's like 10 or 20% on top of every dollar they spend on top of that. So if they went over by another $10 million, they'd have to add another million dollars in it, and that money would then get redistributed to some of the, the, the clubs at the lower socioeconomic end. Well, I guess the real reason that this is just so irksome for me, and this and this is why this is why the the NFL has a great model here, because you know, you have a you have a team like the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, the Green Bay Packers are as close to an AFL club as anything else because they are owned by the fans. They don't have an individual owner. The, the, the fans basically own stock in that club. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a, a cat supporter by the name of Mel, who I talk to on Twitter from time to time, who actually owns Packers stock. I have a, uh, one of my wife's cousins is a huge Packers fan and owns Packers stock as well. But, uh, the rest of the clubs, you know, multi, multi-billionaires that own these teams. And they have a hard salary cap, meaning they cannot spend more than that per year on their total team salary. And it usually goes up every year as the revenue brought in by the league goes up, which is great. But in baseball, teams can spend as much as they want. Now, some teams in football, they have also a, a, a floor, meaning they have to spend at least a certain amount because they want you to have a, a competitive side as much as possible. So in, in, in football, I guess if you, you know, in football, if Tom Brady is not there, anybody has a chance to win the Super Bowl. And I guess, okay, from time to time, teams have defeated Tom Brady's team as well, but you get the idea there. You know, so everybody's got a shot at the brass ring, if you will. Aaron Rodgers is... Packers could win. Pat Mahomes, Chiefs could win. Baker Mayfield's Browns could win. <laughs> I hope someday. Um, I know I picked them to be in the Super Bowl this year. I, I don't know. They're just really scuffling. Hopefully they get healthy soon. 
But that's a quick sidebar. I need to move back from. But back to baseball salary cap. Here's the thing. This year, this year, the, the Los Angeles Dodgers, remember the, sal- the, the, th- the threshold for the luxury tax is $210 million. The Dodgers this year, their total payroll was $271,200,832. So over a quarter of a billion dollars, it's billion with a B, for just one team. For just one team with their 28 players on their on their roster. They didn't even win the World Series. They didn't even make it to the World Series this year. The Yankees were the closest behind them at 200 and almost 206 million. The New York Mets at 201 million. The Houston Astros, who played in the World Series, 194. Now the team that won the series, the Braves, the Atlanta Braves, they were down at 153 million. Still a huge amount. But if you look at that 271 million of the Dodgers. And you scroll down to the teams at the bottom list, the bottom of the list here, the bottom three, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and the Cleveland Indians. And we'll get to the Cleveland Indians in a moment. The, Cle- the, the Indians, their total payroll was just a hair over $50 million. So the Dodgers were paying over five times as much for their roster as the Cleveland Indians were. And here's the rub. This is, this is the thing that I think is going to absolutely decimate baseball. Is be- it becomes... A situation where only a handful of clubs can af- afford to pay the expensive free agents the salaries that they want to be paid. So, you know, if a if a player such as uh, oh let's just let's just say uh, oh I'm drawing up Frankie Lindor Francisco Lindor who got traded from the Indians to the New York Mets, and he signed a. I believe he signed a 10-year, $330 million contract with them, something around there. So he's going to be playing with them for the next decade, and they're going to be paying him $33 million a year to play baseball, which if you can find somebody to pay that to you, good on you. I have, I, I don't, I'm not begrudging that at all. Okay, but the, the problem is, is it becomes a kind of a caste system, if you will. You know, you got the haves and the have-nots. So, you know, theoretically, you know, clubs like the Indians, the the – Baltimore Orioles, the Pirates, the the Detroit Tigers, the Kansas City Royals. Now the Royals did win the World Series a few years ago because they paid a huge sum of uh, money in salary for a couple of years. They're going to struggle to compete unless they they get lucky with some really young, inexpensive players becoming phenomenal players while they're stable, still able to control them. So this is why I think that the the NFL, the NBA, I believe the NHL, and most certainly the AFL have things going in the right direction by having a salary cap. Because this way, everybody's got a shot at winning a championship, or at least competing for one. Nobody, you know, nobody's going to get to take all of the toys home with them. Nobody's going to get to take all of the expensive toys home. You know, n- you know Nobody's going to get the, uh, the Xbox and the PlayStation and the, uh, the Nintendo Switch while you're going home with the... Uh, Oh, I don't know, a Barbie doll, you know, a naked Barbie doll. You got nothing else because that's all you, that's all you were able to afford. So, you know, I, I, I really worry about what's going to happen, you know, with the game of baseball going forward because it, it, it is almost as though these lesser clubs become teams that, that allow their young players to develop and become good players. And then they either have to trade them in order to recoup some sort of, uh, a recovery 
cost on getting something for that player or that player leaves as a free agent and they really get nothing for them. And they're basically kind of like a proving ground for the the more expensive clubs to be able to say, oh yeah, that player's become really good playing in Pittsburgh. We're going to sign them to play for us right now. Or that player got really good in Miami and Miami's got a very low salary. We're going to go ahead and sign them now that they're, they're a free agent and they can play for whoever they'd like to. Now, the big problem here is that the players union in Major League Baseball will never agree to a salary cap because they, of course, want to be. And, and, I, and I don't blame the players for wanting to be paid absolutely as much as they possibly can. I get that. I, I, you know, if if the AFL becomes a, a wealthier competition, you know, and again, I'm not advocating for private ownership of the clubs. I'm not saying that at all. I know there was that, that discussion about infusing some private cash into GWS a couple of years ago, but I don't know if anything became of that. Uh, but you, you couldn't begrudge any player from wanting to earn as much money as they possibly can. And of course, we often hear about players who are saying, you know what, I'll give up a little bit more because I, wanna, I want my club to be able to sign this other player to hopefully get me into the top four and have a shot at a premiership. I mean, that's a very noble and honorable thing. And, and that's happening in a situation where you know the, the top players... In the AFL, your Dusty Martins, your Patty Dangerfields, in terms of salary, you you can certainly argue who's at the top and who's not in terms of talent. Uh, that they are making just a little bit more than some of the lower end players in Major League Baseball. You know, the, the you've got players in Major League Baseball who are making forty million dollars a year. I, and again, I don't begrudge that at all. It's just it's. It makes the playing field not very level. So a lot of these lesser clubs, like I said, they're going to have to just get lucky and possibly win a championship when that when that occurs. But, you know, a lot of these other teams like the Yankees, the Dodgers, are going out of their way to try to buy a championship. So that's one of the real reasons that, that I, I decided that, you know what, I was done with baseball. And I, I still look at the standings to see who's, you know, in first place, that sort of thing. But I didn't watch the World Series. I know who played in it, but I didn't watch. I didn't. I didn't care. I did not care, and I just I. And if baseball has lost a fan like me, somebody who was passionate about the game for a half century, if they've lost somebody like me, I think the game is 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 doomed. You know, especially supporters of the these lesser clubs, Yankee fans, Dodger fans, that sort of thing. They're, they're having their cake and ice cream and sprinkles on top and chocolate sauce and everything. They're getting all of the good, all of the good stuff. We're getting, you know, we're getting to lick the, uh, the empty yogurt container after, after the game has ended. You know, that's, that's what we're getting done at our end. And if, and if enough people like myself become disgruntled with this structure of the game, I, I, I think it could irreparably harm the entire league because the you know the owners realize that that they want to try to level the playing field. You know even the owners of the bigger clubs would like to be able to do that. I've read some things where they have said that, but it it the players union is not going to agree to that. And there's a distinct possibility that there may be some sort of a work stoppage happening here in December because I guess the contract for the players union expires in December and they're going to be having to figure out how to negotiate a new one. And I think that the owners want to continue to push this idea of a salary cap. Now, if they if they introduce a salary cap, I think that could save the game of baseball. Does it mean I'm going to go back and watch it? I don't know. I, I, I don't know because I'm so invested in footy now 
and I'm so invested in what I'm doing with this podcast and engaging with people online talking about footy that I don't know if I've got time for baseball in my life anymore. And I honestly couldn't tell you if that's a bad thing or not. And and by the way, uh, for those of you that don't know, and if you follow baseball on the periphery at all, just a little bit, I... Uh, I'm no longer a Cleveland Indians fan because the Cleveland Indians no longer exist. They ceased to exist last Friday morning. The last, Thursday was the last full day of the Cleveland Indians' existence. And on Friday, they became the Cleveland Guardians. And the, the Guardians, it's named after this significantly sized bridge right near the stadium that have uh, these, and it's kind of ironic now since, as I'd mentioned before, Cleveland is kind of a rust belt city. If I'm not mistaken, they're considered the guardians of industry, which in and of itself, if you think about that, that's rather funny since a lot of industry has left Cleveland. <clears throat> but um, so they've named themselves the Cleveland guardians, which there was also a, a local club that did what's called roller derby. And you'll have to Google it. I'm not going to explain roller derby. Uh, but they were, they've been called the Cleveland Guardians for years. So they actually filed a, a lawsuit against the baseball team. And just last week, they reached an agreement. So they're going to still both call themselves the Cleveland Guardians. And they've, they've hammered things out. Um, but they were not off to a very auspicious beginning. And I don't know if, you know, because the, the Cleveland Indians, the last time that they won a championship, and this is where those of you who are D supporters... Uh, you can sit down and be quiet now because you only waited 57 years for your premiership. And I, I, I said it, you only waited 57 years, okay? The Chicago Cubs defeated the Indians in the 2016 World Series. And the Indians were in a great position. They were up three games to one. They had to win the fourth game, the uh, fourth game to, to win it. They ended up losing four games to three. The Cubs had not won the World Series in over 100 years. They had not won in over 100 years. They were the lovable losers because, you know, they would get close and something would happen. Well, the Indians, the last time they won the World Series was 1948. So that's 73 years, I believe, now. Um, my mom was in the first grade. She was six years old the last time the Indians won the World Series. So... Again, those of you who are Melbourne supporters and you're, you know, you're, you're saying, well, 57 years is a long time. Eh, I disagree with you on that. Try 1948. Okay. And then we'll talk. So we've got a new team name here and not everybody's excited about it. Yeah, And the, the idea here was, and, and I, and compl I completely get it. I'm not, I'm not, there are plenty of people who are adamant about not supporting the, the team anymore because God damn it, they changed the team name. They've been the Indians for over a century. I'm not going to support this team now that they've changed the name. I'm not one of those people. I liked the team name. The legend is that they that it was kind of a, a, a tribute to a Native American player that had played on the team. And I, I hear disparaging views on that, that maybe that wasn't quite the case, but there was a, a player by the name of Louis Sokalexis who played for them back around the turn of the last century. And supposedly they'd named the club after him in tribute. I don't know if that's exactly true, but that's been the legend. That's what I've grown up with. So they've become the Guardians as of Friday. And that's fine. The same color scheme, red, white, and blue. 
they they kind of have a goofy looking pair of G's on both sides of a baseball. They're supposed to look like these big stone guys that are on this bridge uh, right outside the stadium. Well, Friday morning, I'm in my classroom and I'm working on some things with my students. And actually, they were watching a film for a few minutes. So I was looking at the news online. And, you know, like they have the the team store for all 18 clubs in the AFL. Uh, They, the Cleveland Guardians, opened up their new team store at, I believe, 9 o'clock on Friday morning to start selling Cleveland Guardians gear, you know, jerseys, T-shirts, ball caps, that sort of thing. All of the stuff that people want to have now that they're Guardians fans. Okay? So they... They go to buy all this stuff, and this this is at the team store that is at the stadium. It is part of the stadium. It's built into the stadium, and they've you know, they've got all the stuff in there. They put a nice big new Guardians logo up above the entrance to the store. This huge, probably ten foot across, neon lighted Guardians logo signed. Welcome to the Guardians team shop. And about an hour after it opened, the goddamn thing fell off the wall and crashed to the ground. It fell about. 15, 20 feet to the ground, just broke apart. So I'm not sure if that's an omen. I'm not sure if that's the baseball God saying, yeah, we're not sure we really approve of this name change or this whole idea of going in this direction. So we're just going to let you know that we're a little bit concerned. So sign falls off the stadium the first day that they're the new, the new team name. So I don't know if that, like I said, I don't know if that's an omen. I don't know if that's uh, some, some bad juju or, uh, or what they uh, what they call here in Cleveland, uh, what they call the Maloik, uh, a curse, if you will, um, because supposedly somebody had put a curse on the Cleveland Browns that they would never win a Super Bowl. Well, that one has certainly come to fruition so far because I've been waiting my entire. I was at least alive. They won a championship in 1964. So the sign falls off of the stadium. Okay, you think okay. It happens. It's just, it's a coincidence. Well, yesterday, yesterday, Sunday, Monday, one of those two days, just in the last couple of days, one of the Indians' uh, most memorable players who played for them during the, the dog days of the late 80s into the early 90s, he was a, a relief pitcher. So he would actually come in and try to end the game. Uh, he was their closer for seven seasons and for for a while led the team in saves meaning that he ended games without the other team coming back and scoring to win the game he had done more that more times than any other pitcher until just a couple of years ago that they replaced him this gentleman only 64 years old passes away you know a a legend of the club passes away at a relatively young age of 64 so i just i just i don't know where things are going with with this new club so I thank God for the AFL. I'm I'm just I'm so I'm so entrenched with it. I'm I'm so thrilled that all of you have been as receptive as you have been to me uh, with regards to reaching out. I I'm like I said I'm going to be out of town for a few days here, but I have about six or eight interviews that are that are yeses. We're going to go. We just have to set the time, and I cannot wait to get back. Well, I mean. That's going to come out sounding wrong. I cannot wait to see my, my son. I have saw him for about a day, day and a half back in July. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing him for a couple of days. But I'm, I'm looking forward also to then getting back to 
conducting interviews and sitting down and talking with people about this great game and, and sharing those thoughts and those ideas with you. Because I've got some some really unique angles lined up. I just sent one. I just set up an interview for after the first of the year uh, with somebody who just assumed a new position in their job uh, with regards to footy. So I'm very excited with that. I, I talked to them today and traded messages. We're going to get together after the uh, the first of the new year. So I'm I'm thrilled with the direction, the way the show is going. I know I've done a couple of repeat episodes here, but I wanted to introduce it with some new material as well here. So I'm, I'm thankful for the salary cap in footy. Do I wish players got paid more? Sure I do. But that would probably require us paying more in memberships and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, of course, then you've got all the sponsorships out there. I, I have no problem with people maximizing their income and making as much money as they possibly can. I'm, I've got no problem with that at all. So, as I was saying, I'm, I'm thrilled with the whole idea of the salary cap in the AFL. They, they learned a lot from David Stern with the NBA, with the NFL. And, unfortunately, Major League Baseball... If you're listening to anybody in baseball, you lost a fan. You lost a 50-plus year fan because of your efforts to try to tinker with the game and your inability to level the playing field so all 30 clubs have a shot at competing. Because the way it's set up right now, they really don't have a shot at doing that. And until you fix that, you're probably going to lose more fans like me. And I'll tell you what. I'm baiting my hook right now, and I'm trying to bring every goddamn one of them over to this game, to Australian Rules Football. And I'm doing that because it fits nicely into our schedule. Those of you who know that, we baseball season pretty much starts end of March, beginning of April, and it wraps up with the World Series usually in November, but it's uh, you know the NFL season beginning in early September. So there's a little bit of an overlap at the uh, at the outset of the NFL season. So if you're a disgruntled baseball fan and you're listening to this, I strongly encourage you to check out the Australian Football League, the AFL, okay? Because this is, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I think it's the greatest game on the planet, bar none. And if you're, dis- if you're disgusted by what's going on in baseball, this is the game for you to check out. Not just because it fits into the schedule nicely for us, but because it is such a dynamic game. It's such a free-flowing game. And it's just, like I said, it's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. I thank all of you who have reached out to me. I hope you'll continue to reach out. I hope that you'll you know consider subscribing to the email list. I'd love for you to drop me a review over on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what you think about the podcast. I'm working hard at at, uh, at getting this thing up and going. I did put up a little post up on my Instagram page yesterday uh, that I'm just about done converting my uh, spare closet up in an empty bedroom upstairs into a recording room. I got it cleared out. I've got the desk in there. got the chair in there. I have no electricity as of yet, and I need to put some sound dampening in there. So that's going to be coming up here once we get back uh, from our little trip here. So again, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you. Don't forget that uh, I'm hoping to discuss the upcoming season for all 14 clubs in the AFLW as well as all 18 clubs in the AFL. If you're somebody who wants to get on board with that, you want to join me on the podcast and you want to talk some footy about your club, you want to tell me why your club's going to be great or why you've got yet another year of rebuilding, 
reach out to me over on my website at yankonthefooty.com. There's a register as a guest link up at the top of the page where you can sign up, put your, your socials in there, give me a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, if you want to provide your email in there as well, I will reach out to you because uh, I want to set things up here and uh, have some you know, quick 25, 30-minute conversations with, with supporters of all, let's just say all 32 of those clubs, okay, the 18 AFL and the 14 AFLW clubs. Yeah, I'm also um, looking to start talking to people about the local state leagues, that type of thing, learning about how those things function as well. Uh, if you've got some ideas or some input on that, that would be fantastic as well. Don't forget, if you want to help out the podcast, you can go over to the uh, website at yankonthefooty.com. In the bottom left-hand corner, there's a little button there. Uh, it says, buy me a coffee if you want to help out the show. All that stuff that comes in from that. First of all, I appreciate you know, those of you who have donated, who have helped out. You certainly don't have to, but I really love it if you would consider helping out the show there. It helps to defray some of my costs uh, for running the podcast. If you want to do that, you can do that. You can also go over to my Redbubble page, uh, which is linked up at the top as well. Uh, you can get a sticker for the podcast, pop that on the back of your car as you're out tooling around your neighborhood and pick up some listeners that way. And by all means, share a link to the show with your friends. If you've got friends who are footy fans and you've got a favorite episode, send them that link. Put it out there in your socials. That'd be a huge help, okay? I My goal this year was to hit 20,000 downloads by the end of December, because that was going to be the second anniversary of the podcast. Well, I hit 20,000 downloads last month and I'm closing in on 21 right now, but I, I'm about two months ahead and I cannot thank all of you enough for that. That's those of you throughout Australia, throughout the United States, North America and Canada, Great Britain. Right now it's, uh, I think, and again, some of them I think are tuning in looking for a footy podcast, thinking that it's soccer, because I've got several instances where I've had one person listen in, in different countries around the world. So I'm up to like 43 or 44 different countries right now, which I'm I'm stunned by that, quite frankly. But again, ladies and gents, thanks so very much for checking out the show. I appreciate it. I really, really do. Ladies and gents, that's enough for tonight. Uh, let's go hear a blast from the past, and that is episode 10 of A Yank on the Footy. Learn a little bit about how the VFL worked in conjunction with the NBA and the NFL to help save the league and get the AFL to where it is today. Folks, you're going to hear it in the rebroadcast, but I'm going to say it here as well. I truly appreciate you. As always, may your dribble kick never, ever hit that post. Thanks a bunch, ladies and gents. I will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of A Yank on the Footy. I'm Craig Wessels from Sandusky, Ohio, and I'm glad that you're listening. I have to tell you, it's great to say episode 10 being in double digits. They tell podcasters starting out, you've got to get past episode 7 and then episode 9. Well, I've made it to episode 10 now, and I'm thrilled to be here. For those of you who've listened to the first few episodes... I want to thank you for coming back again, and for those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm thrilled that you've decided to take a listen. 
I can only imagine how busy you are, and I truly appreciate you taking time to tune into my show. Don't forget that while you can find this podcast at a yankonthefooty.podbean.com, you can also find it on your favorite podcast provider. After you've listened, I would love if you'd consider giving me a review. It lets me know what I need to work on and what I'm doing well. I would also appreciate it if you'd consider sharing a link to the show with your friends, whether they're fans of footy or not. Don't forget, you can also reach me at a yank on the footy at gmail.com as well as on Twitter at yank underscore on and on Facebook and Instagram at a yank on the footy. As I move into this episode, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of other great American footy podcasts that are out there and are definitely worth a listen. The first one I want to mention is one that's called Outside 50, and it's hosted by Rick Shibani and Wayne Kraska. And Wayne, I believe, is in the Atlanta area, and Rick, I believe, lives in Los Angeles now. He spent a few years in Australia and is back in the States. And I've not met Wayne. I've not spoken to him. I've traded messages with him online. But from what I have gathered, Wayne is an absolute icon in the American footy world. And Rick's back in the States after having spent a couple years in Australia playing footy, working in his profession there as well. The focus of their podcast is, much of it is on the USAFL. So if you're wanting to keep up with what's happening here in the States, these two gentlemen are somebody you should definitely take a listen to. I've listened to a couple of episodes, and they are extraordinarily knowledgeable and very entertaining. And I'm hoping to have both of these gentlemen on my show in the very near future. The other podcast that I wanted to mention today that I would strongly encourage you to take a listen to is one called AFL Obsessed. And it's hosted by a New Yorker, and boy does she know her stuff. She's only a handful of episodes into her journey, but it sure sounds like a well-polished program. As I'm typing this, Rosanna, who is the host, is tweeting from Perth. I promise I'm not going to be envious. I'm not going to be envious. I've seen the movie Seven. I know how that goes, for goodness sake. I will not be envious. I hope you're having a great time, Rosanna. In reality, I've listened to both of these shows, as I said, and they bring a great deal to the table with regards to learning more and more about this game. Now, as I dive into the subject matter for this week's episode, I wanted to touch on a couple of things from the outset. First off, as I was working on writing this script, and I finished it up just a little while ago, it was 1 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, here in the state of Ohio, and I was waiting for the Cats and Sons contest to get started in the Marsh series. I posted on uh, social media earlier that day a uh, an image um, about me getting ready to sit down and watch that first preseason contest, and it was going to be an awful lot like that iconic opening line from that Garth Brooks song, you know. Well, with the time difference, 3.30 in the morning... Not a soul in sight. City's looking like a ghost town. Well, you get the idea. I'm not going to sing here. That's not why I'm here. But uh, it most certainly was like that. Um, I have to be honest, though. Full disclosure, I actually liked the uh, cover version that the band All That Remains did of that song, The Thunder Rolls. It's really good. Um, 
now that I'm recording, it's after the game has been played in Gold Coast. You played one terrific game. And I surely hope that my beloved cats were pacing themselves and you know, had several players getting ready to participate in the State of Origin games. State of Origin game coming up here very soon. So it was kind of an ugly performance for the Cats, but again, it's the preseason. They don't count. Now, the State of Origin game looks like it's going to be something that's going to be a fantastic event. It's great to see the league bringing the best of the best together for such a worthy cause. And I think playing it right after the, the D's and Pies game is another great idea as the anticipation of the State of Origin game can only help with providing a great deal of additional positive exposure to the women's game. And I wonder if there's any consideration, and maybe you know this, and let me know. Send me a tweet. Send me an email. Let me know. I wonder if there's any consideration to hold the State of Origin game. I think I might have said State of the Union game earlier. I teach government in high school, and we watched the State of the Union address earlier. So if I said State of the Union, I'm sorry about that. The State of the Origin game. I wonder if there, there's talk about doing this every year and possibly extending the women's season maybe by a week and have the women's clubs play a State of Origin game at the same time. Kind of a double header, similar to what they're doing now. Instead of having it with a, the, uh, the D's and Pies game, having the women's state of origin game along with the men's. I'd be surprised if that isn't at least being bandied about at the AFL headquarters that they haven't talked about it. I don't think it hurts anything to extend the women's season one more week. Give them an opportunity to have an all-star game, if you will. You know, like I said, these all-star games, they can be great money makers for the charities that the AFL wants to contribute to. And, of course, you know, what they're doing right now, I can't think of anything better than raising money for the uh, Bush fire relief efforts. Uh, I think it's fantastic that the players are looking to do this sort of thing. And this is one of the things that the major sports in the U.S. tend to do rather well. The baseball all-star game, which is in the middle of the season, is extraordinarily popular. Okay? They have the home run derby where you've got somebody throwing batting practice to the some of the best hitters in the game to see how many balls they can hit out of the stadium with, you know, making a certain number of outs. Um, they have a celebrity, I think, a softball game. They also have a, a, a futures game where they bring in some of the best young players that are playing the game who haven't made it to the major leagues yet. They haven't made it to the pinnacle, but it's like these are the kids who are on the cusp of being the best. So the Major League Baseball has it down. The NBA, who we're going to be talking about quite a bit later on in this episode, has turned All-Star Weekend into a massive event. Celebrities from all over the country and probably all over the world showing up to watch the festivities. They have the slam dunk contest where people try to come up with the most creative slam dunks. The three-point shooting contest. They have a celebrity game. And then the game itself, which tends to be one of the more high-scoring affairs of the season. I know the AFL has done different specialty rounds, as the AFLW is doing this weekend as I'm recording this, uh, and pertain to different issues. But having this kind of an all-star contest coupled with the AFLW, I think, would be a great opportunity for fans to see the greatest the game has to offer on on the same field at the same time. Now, I'm not talking about having the men and women play on the field at the same time. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I think it would be a great opportunity for the fans to see the best of the best all in one place at one time. If I could make one recommendation, though, just my two cents worth, I don't think they should invite Meatloaf to perform during that weekend. Just my two cents worth. Okay. I know, Meatloaf's a touchy subject. Now, not sure how many of you got a chance to watch some games in round two of the AFLW. Round three is going on as I'm writing this and recording this, but uh, I've got to tell you, that matchup last week between Collingwood and Carlton, wow. I think if you watch that one, you've got to concur that those young ladies that were playing in that game, they realized what kind of rivalry that game is. There was some serious hitting going on in that game. I wish some of the teams in the NFL were able to hit like that. It was it was amazing because they were getting after one another. Now, there was nothing malicious. It was good, hard tackling that was happening. It was a very well-played game, I thought. And I have to tell you, I think it was wonderful to see Sharni Layton play such a dynamic game as well. And that's really two games in a row for her. I haven't watched Collingwood's game this weekend, so I don't know how things went. But she is seemingly was everywhere on the oval. She was all over the place, and her ball skills have improved dramatically, especially when she's the ball's down below her knees, something that she maybe struggled with a little bit last year. But it's, she's become much more of a natural at that, and is really picking up the game very well. And it, it's fantastic to watch that. And uh, I think she could be a huge addition and big help to the Magpies going forward this year through the rest of their their fixture. Now, of course, I'm saying that. Like I said, I hadn't watched the whole game, and I just turned the TV on and watched uh, Sharni take a great mark and kick a goal in the first quarter in the game with the Dockers, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I did see that the Pies did not win this weekend. Now, one of the other things that I was able to watch this week was the uh, the game at Marvel Stadium between the uh, Kangaroos and the Bulldogs. Now, I'm not sure how the rest of the March Community Series is going to play out, but I have to tell you, in my personal opinion, the best thing that I think any of us will see was the return of Magic Daw. As we know, 2019 was a very difficult year for that young man, and he went through some very trying times. Seeing him amongst his teammates, smiling and genuinely looking as though he's enjoying himself playing the game was the highlight of my footy weekend. It really was. And Magic, if you're listening, and let's be honest, I'd be shocked if you were. Um, I know I'm not alone in looking forward to seeing you return to form as somebody who is continually providing those the actions of the one percenter that your club truly needs defending the 50, knocking the ball away from those forwards, playing great defense. It's nice to have you back out there, sir. It's nice to have you back out there. Now, the last thing related to the games that I wanted to get into, and this is one that people have been talking about since it happened, and it really has polarized some people, and that was the incident that took place between Marley Williams and Ed Richards. The elbow that Williams laid on Richard's head 
certainly looked vicious. And he and uh, Richards left the game with what was perceived to be a concussion. Okay, he did not return to the game. Now, I've seen multiple statements from people on social media saying that, that Williams should be banned two to four games. Now, I'm not an expert on this sort of thing, other than knowing that Tom Hawkins needs to keep his elbows to himself. Um, but one of the problems that I have with this warranting any more than, say, a week, and I, and I think, sure, elbow to the head, that definitely warrants a suspension. But here's the thing that I have a problem with, okay? The match review panel is probably going to give him a week for this. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this would be round one as opposed to the second exhibition game. But if you get a chance to see the video, and they showed most of it from a the angle behind Ed Richards, but if you see the angle coming from Richard's right side as Marley Williams is coming towards the camera. It sure looked to me as though Williams was attempting to toe poke the ball past Richard's right leg and get it away from him so he couldn't move the ball further into the goal square. Now, sure, his elbow was reckless, but the intent, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but from what I saw from that side angle, the intent was the toe poke. The result was the elbow, which is going to cost him a suspension at least. You know, I don't, like I said, I don't know if that was something that warrants multiple games. Because he didn't go in there, at least from what I saw in my opinion, he didn't go in there simply to clean Richard's clock. It looked to me like he was trying to dislodge the ball. Like I said, I could be wrong about that, however. Now, if you uh, listen to episode 8, I dug into the historic game of Austis, and I really enjoyed the feedback that I got from many of you. There were quite a few of you in Australia who said you were unfamiliar with the game, just like I was, and it was exciting, it was exciting to dig into that history and learn more about that great game. Now, this week, I wanted to dig a little further in a different direction. And I wanted to take a look back at the time when the VFL was getting ready to spread its wings and ultimately grow into the AFL that we know and love today. And the time period that I'm talking about is the mid-1980s. And this was a time period that while the VFL was wanting to spread its wings, those wings almost got clipped. This story is something that most of you may be familiar with. But as a relatively new footy fan, it's something I wanted to know more about, so I decided I wanted to research this and dig into this, and I did a lot of reading. Um, and from what I've been able to gather, back in 1983, the VFL was on the cusp of some dire times. There were some bad things happening in the VFL. And in fact, by 1986, the VFL as we know it, it almost folded. According to a 2016 article from The Age written by Jason Dowling, he, he stated in, in this article that due to financial issues, that there were seven clubs, Fitzroy, Geelong, Footscray, Collingwood, Melbourne, North Melbourne, and Richmond, that were near financial collapse or bankruptcy. And in 1986, and I didn't realize that this when I dug into this a little bit more, that this gentleman is actually was an actual government employee. This was not 
a corporation. This was somebody that worked for the government. But in August of 1986, the Corporate Affairs Commissioner, a gentleman by the name of Gordon Lewis, and for those of you that are listening in the U.S., this is an official government position. This is not somebody that is in a corporation or a business. This is somebody, from what I could tell from my digging, it appears as though he's part of the, the national government in Australia and part of the government's Treasury Department. Well, this Commissioner Lewis, he wrote a letter to the seven clubs that I mentioned to you before, Fitzroy, Geelong, Footscray, Collingwood, Melbourne, North, and Richmond, and he told them that Fitzroy and North and St. Kilda, who I did not mention in Melbourne, were going to need to seek to either merge with one another or some other clubs. And to me, that means then that maybe Richmond and Collingwood and Geelong were maybe not in as dire straits as the other ones. Um, but he said, quote from the article, please advise me within seven days what steps the Victorian Football League or its club company members, club company members, propose to take to remedy the situation. Unless your response to me contains some viable proposals to remedy the present situation, it's my intention to carry out my statutory obligations. Now, what are those obligations? Well, according to the article, those obligations were to shut down the league because it was not economically viable. He was talking about actually shutting down the VFL. Now, the VFL may have come back in some permutation, but without those clubs. And could you imagine the league without those clubs? I know I can't. I'd have to find another team to support. And from what I gathered during this this reading that I was doing on this, that there were only a handful of teams, Essendon, Carlton, St. Kilda to an extent, even though he mentioned them earlier and saying they had to merge, and Hawthorne, and by this time Sydney, because they had uh, moved from South Melbourne just, I think, the year before, 1982, I believe was the last year in in South Melbourne before they went to Sydney. But these are the only clubs that were fiscally solvent. And one could argue that uh, Sydney was in that position simply because they had moved to a new city. And they, they still kind of had that new car smell, if you will, being in a different city. Now, in 1986, former St. Kilda Saint by the name of Ross Oakley was appointed chairman and CEO of the VFL. He ultimately remained in that position of CEO after the permissions were excuse me after the positions were split in 1993. So he he had this job for eight years, okay. And Oakley said that the clubs had some balance sheets that were really pretty disastrous, and it came very close to despair disappearing as a competition. That the league almost collapsed because of the finances. It wasn't because of the play on the field. It was because of the finances. And as he said, I think there would always well, there always would have been some form of Australian football, but not in the form that it was in and not a VFL the way it was. And up until that point, the Victorian government, they didn't even want the game to expand to other states in Australia. So the team moving to Sydney 
did not, I'm sure, sit well with the Victorian government because the Victorian government was actually considering passing legislation to prevent teams from expanding or from keeping the VFL from expanding outside of Victoria. They wanted to keep it contained within just that state. Okay. And, you know, ultimately, though, we did end up having clubs going to Western and Southern Australia to Queensland and New South Wales. And who knows, maybe elsewhere sometime down the road. Now, one can certainly argue that the, the VFL purists may not have liked the ideas of expanding their game. But when you stop and think about it, expanding the game, bringing, bringing Brisbane and West Coast into what is going to become the AFL, for all intents and purposes, helped to save the league because the money that they chipped in when they began their franchises helped to stabilize some of the other teams. So there were some serious problems going on in 1986 leading into 1987. And I'm going to jump around here a little bit because we're going to go back and forth between 1986 and 1983. So I want to jump back to 1983 right now. And the leadership in the VFL kind of saw the proverbial handwriting on the wall, if you will. They saw the financial problems that were beginning to surface in the league. And they wanted to figure out how to go about heading them off before they got worse. Well, we know that maybe they didn't do as good a job with that as they could have because of what we just talked about happening in 1986. Okay. Now, these cracks were beginning to show in the way that the VFL had conducted the league. They realized that they needed to talk to some people that might have some suggestions on how to resolve their issues. Now, one of the things that they were concerned about was the salaries, how much players were getting paid. And from what I had been able to gather, salaries had grown to a point where it had become unsustainable, to a point where many of the clubs were actually in the red. And I had done some reading, and I think it was actually in the, the article from The Age, where they talked about where some of the clubs did not even have enough money to pay the taxes that they were having to pay on the salaries. But there wasn't enough money to do even that. So several leaders of the VFL made arrangements to travel here to the United States. And what they wanted to do, I guess, was meet with the leadership of the different sports organizations here in the United States. And one of the people that made that trip um, this direction was a gentleman by the name of Richard or Dick Seddon. And he was an attorney who had served as the club secretary for the Demons from 1980 to 1984. He went on this trip with the vice president of the VFL, a guy by the name of Ron Cook. And when they made this trip to the U.S., they met with the leadership, the heads of all four major sports, all four sports organizations, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. Now, prior to doing this, Seddon had come up with what I think is a rather unique way to try to generate money for the Demons. But I'll tell you about it if you've not heard of this, and you tell me if it was a steady source of income. He actually set up basically an insurance program where if you're a Demons fan, you could purchase a life insurance policy. And 
it said that the life insurance policy cost $268. Now, I don't know if that was $268 a year or if it was a, a one-time purchase. It doesn't, the math doesn't seem right if it was a one-time cost. Because what would happen is after you, that Demons fan, died, that insurance policy would pay $100,000 to the club. Now, that's a rather unique way to try to generate money. So I think that $268 had to be per year. I don't think that could be just a one-time payment. But you talk about taking your club membership seriously. If you're buying an insurance policy to pay the club after you pass away, wow. Now, once Mr. Cook and Mr. Seddon got to the United States, they met with, uh, and this is according to an article that came out in February of this year, just a couple of weeks ago from ESPN, written by Shannon Gill. Uh, the, the people that came along with this uh, contingency of the VFL, they didn't get very many recommendations from the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle. Roselle was kind of confused as to why these people were here. He was busy with his own league. He didn't really have a whole lot to tell them. Now, they met then with the heads of Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League as well. Now, one of the uh, things that the MLB did talk about with this contingency was the idea of free agency. Okay, because only about a decade before this meeting, I'm enjoying some nice peppermint tea right now. But about a decade before this meeting was held, back in the late 60s, early 70s, if you were a major league player, you played under what was known as a reserve clause. And major league baseball was considered a trust, a monopoly, if you will. Okay, so if you're a member of a team, you got signed by a team, you were a member of that team either until you retired or left baseball or you were traded to another club. There was zero opportunity for a player to leave their present club and strike out to find a job with another organization or, in fact, refuse to play with a team who did not give you a contract or would not give you a contract. Okay? Now, in 1969, this was challenged by a three-time All-Star, a seven-time Gold Glove winning center fielder by the name of Kurt Flood. And Kurt Flood played Kurt Flood played for the St. Louis Cardinals, a great baseball team in the 1960s. And at the end of the 1969 season, he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. Now his contract with the Cardinals had expired, so technically he did not have a contract. So he argued that he should be allowed to go out and seek employment with what other team he what other team he wished. Now, under the reserves clause, his new team was going to give him a contract, so he would be getting his new contract from the Phillies because he had been traded. He didn't want to play for the Phillies. Now, Kurt Flood was a man who had grown up and in many ways was still living under the remnants of Jim Crow laws here in the United States. He had been raised in Oakland, California, but once he had gotten into professional baseball, he and his wife were in, I believe, someplace in Texas and refused the ability to rent a house because of their skin color. Kurt Flood is African-American. And 
Mr. Flood had marched with in 1962, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he had marched with his idol, Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. And they, he marched alongside them in the nonviolent protests that were organized by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People here in the United States. What I'm saying to you is that Mr. Flood was not afraid to stand up for his rights. And the case of his new contract, he truly believed that he should be able to go out and sign a contract with a team of his choosing. Well, it turns out that did not end up being the case. Now, I'm going to get back to Mr. Flood's story in a moment, but I wanted to go ahead, uh, and it's a very important story because uh, what's going to happen about 15 years later in the VFL. And that's going to be where Swan's player by the name of Silvio Foscini, and I may be getting that name wrong. I've not heard it before. Silvio Foscini, he left the Swans and decided to go play with St. Kilda in the middle of the season without any kind of approval, any kind of clearance, anything like that. And this kind of flew in the face of the zoning laws, if you will, that the, the VFL has in place. They put those in place in 1967. And ultimately, you know, this was designed to keep people playing for the clubs that they were assigned to. Okay. Now, ultimately, the AFL would, would hold their first draft where they actually drafted players in 1986. And this happened with the addition of the West Coast Eagles and the Brisbane Bears. Now, getting back to, to Kurt Flood, he refused to play for the Phillies in 1970. So he sat out the entire season. He did not play baseball. He did not get paid. But he was standing up for the principle of him having the right to go out and seek employment elsewhere. Something that we now have happening in the AFL, where players, once they're out of contract, can choose to sign with another team. Okay? Now, he refused to play with the Phillies in 1970, and ultimately, he only played a handful of games in 1971, and his career was basically over at that point. Now, the wheels of, of justice, if you will, don't always move quickly. So you may have an injustice that is happening towards you, and you decide that I need to file a lawsuit or something of that nature, that doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It takes time. So while all this is going on, Flood is, is filing lawsuits to try to get his independence, if you will. He grew up under what were called Jim Crow laws here in the United States. And I'm going to put a link to, you know, if you're in Australia, Jim Crow laws are something that may be new to you. I'm putting a link in the show notes about the Jim Crow laws. You can read up on those. But it was these were things that were going on mainly in states in the southern part of the United States following the Civil War, where it was trying to marginalize the rights of African Americans and prevent them from being able to exercise their full abilities as American citizens. But Flood's case ultimately made it before the United States Supreme Court, and he lost his case by a five to three vote. Now there are nine judges, there are nine justices on our Supreme Court. One of them. Justice Lewis Powell stepped away. He recused himself from the case because he announced that he actually owned stock in a company called Anheuser-Busch, which is a, a brewing company. And, and Anheuser-Busch 
owns the St. Louis Cardinals. So he thought there was a conflict of interest. So he stepped away from this case. And at the last moment, the chief justice at this time, he decided to flip his vote. I believe, or flip his vote. And I believe this was Warren Berger. I did not write his name down, but I believe this was Warren Berger, if I remember correctly. I teach government. I should know this. I think it was Warren Berger. He's, he's who was replaced by uh, William Rehnquist later on. He changed his vote at the last moment. So he was going to vote in favor of Kurt Flood. But that would have left it at a 4-4 four to four vote, which would not have been enough to grant free agency to Kurt Flood. But what he did was he started the process. He primed the pump, if you will. If you think about it as being a pump, a water pump out in an agricultural area where you're digging a well and you're having to pump the water out of the ground, he got the pump going, okay? Because what's going to happen here, and I should say the Chief Justice said, well, you know what? Major League Baseball is a monopoly, so I can't just give you free agency because of the reserve clause, because they are a trust, they're a monopoly, if you will. You'll need to go ahead and resolve this through collective bargaining, through the players union if you will okay and that ultimately happened and by the end of the season 1975 so only four years after flood's career ends the first major league baseball player becomes a free agent and that was a pitcher by the name of andy messersmith i've got one of his baseball cards somewhere in a box upstairs uh he left the los angeles dodgers and signed a contract with the atlanta braves now, this foundation of free agency is something, like I said, that's going to ultimately be something that gets incorporated into the VFL and the AFL, allowing players, after they've finished out their contract, to go play for another club. Okay? Now, getting back to Mr. Cook and Mr. Seddon on their trip here to the United States, they'd become rather frustrated. They'd visited with... Major League Baseball. They had visited, you know, they, and they talked about free agency with them. They visited the NHL, did not learn a whole whole lot. They visited with the NFL, and Pete Rosell was kind of wondering, hey, who are these guys? Okay. But Seddon ended up having a conversation with a gentleman I had not heard of before I read this article. And turns out he's an American expat, and I guess he was a huge TV star in Australia. A gentleman by the name of Don Lane. Now, Don Lane was familiar with sports here in the United States, having been from here. And he was also one of Melbourne's more famous supporters, if you will, at the time. And he made a suggestion to Mr. Seddon and Mr. Cook that they meet with the head of the National Basketball Association, the NBA, a guy by the name of Larry O'Brien. Okay, now at this time, the NBA was not what it is today. Okay, the NBA is a global entity. People are watching LeBron James play basketball in countries all over the world. I know that because I, when I'm watching footy, I will occasionally see commercials on television for the NBA. I know that, ha I know that that's going on. Okay. But like I said, at this point in time, the NBA was not this juggernaut, this huge money-making machine that it is today. Many of the teams were struggling to survive economically. 
very similar to the problems that the VFL was having, okay? You had some teams that were doing very well financially, the Lakers in Los Angeles, the Boston Celtics, the New York Knicks. They were all very successful clubs, but there were others that struggled to get fans in the in the door to, to sell tickets. You had some that left the cities they were in for greener pastures. I remember there used to be a team in Buffalo, and if I'm not Buffalo, New York, which is about four hours east of where I am, and I believe they left and went to San Diego, California, to play there, hoping to get larger crowds and therefore generating more money for the team. And I believe they actually became the Los Angeles Clippers, okay, because that team left San Diego and went to Los Angeles, okay. But the commissioner was not too terribly enamored with talking to Cook and Seddon, okay. So he introduced them to the NBA's legal counsel, a gentleman by the name of David Stern. You might have heard of him. Yep, that David Stern. David Stern is later on going to spend close to three decades as the commissioner of the NBA. He's going to replace Larry O'Brien in that position when he's done. Now, for those of you that don't know, uh, David Stern did pass away back on New Year's Day about seven weeks ago. So Seddon and Cook sit down to talk to him about the problems that they're facing in the game. And Stern was very interested in the situation that was going on with Silvio Faschini. They spoke to him at length about that and how they were trying to deal with that situation. And according to Gill's article, this is when Stern began to talk to them about what he called the NBA's aggregate salary cap rules. And Seddon and Cook kind of looked at one another and they were they were very interested. Salary cap. Tell us more. So this idea of the salary cap on on how much teams would be able to spend on salaries began very quickly to sound like a great solution to the problems that the VFL was having. If you remember earlier in the episode, we were talking about how many of these teams were struggling to make payroll. They could not pay the salaries of the players because in many cases the salaries had increased and had outpaced the amount of money that the league was able to bring in, but they were still obligated to pay those, to pay those players. All right. So the scheduled meeting time comes and goes. It's over. And Seddon wants more. He realizes, you know what? This is a guy who might have some input about stuff that we, that we can use. We can take back home and incorporate it in our game, and we can keep our game alive. So Seddon begged him, pleaded with him, can I come back tomorrow to talk to you again? And Stern said, sure. And the next day, they spent the entire day basically going through the NBA salary cap rules almost word for word. So as, as Stern is sitting down and explaining these things to him, Seddon is furiously writing down notes on a notepad and kind of, if you will, translating the NBA salary cap into VFL. Okay. So he basically rewrites these rules and becomes up with these new salary cap rules that he thinks are going to help write the finish, you know, help keep the VFL afloat. And in fact, he has them done that night back in the hotel room. He's got them written. He's ready to go. Okay. 
And the VFL commissioner at that time, a gentleman by the name of Jack Hamilton, was thrilled about this this great idea that Seddon had discovered and he had adapted to fit their need. And the salary cap was actually put in place almost immediately. I mean, it was like they got back off the plane. I think they let him get their luggage. I think they let him get back you know, home, maybe put on some clean socks, take a shower, whatever the case may be. But they, they implemented it very quickly. Okay. And it allowed some of the con- some of the bigger contracts that were out there to be grandfathered in, meaning they still got to pay him, but it began to put it began to slow down the increase in the amount of money they're paying to more and more players. Okay, it helped to make the less affluent clubs stabilize their finances. It gave them the opportunity to compete on a more level playing field with the with the wealthier clubs. And like I said, by 1986. That first draft was held. Okay, you're bringing two new teams into the league. Their revenue that they're providing to uh, to play in the league helps to stabilize it even more. And what's interesting is that this new draft, this 1986 draft, it's nothing like what we see today. That's one of the things that I, I, I missed, and I could go back and watch it now if I chose to, but I missed this uh, because my Watch AFL app um, subscription had expired and the new one didn't kick in until the beginning of January. I missed the draft. And it's a two-day affair on television. The NFL has it as a three-day affair now. The NFL has three-day, well, one one evening and then two days. They do the first round. There's seven total rounds. They do the first one, and then they do two and three on the second day, and then four through seven on the third day. But the AFL is is televising the draft. A little different than the first draft back in November of 1986. Okay, and according to an article that I read from Emma Quayle on AustralianFootball.com, the first ever draft pick, a gentleman by the name of Martin Leslie, he didn't even know he had been picked. Brisbane picked him. He had no clue. He had just signed a new two-year contract extension to play with Port Adelaide in the Sandful. He had no idea he'd been drafted. He was back up uh, in he was up in Darwin. I don't know if he was from Darwin or not, but he was up in Darwin working an off-season job, and he happened to pick up a newspaper and saw his own name in the paper. They said, hey, you're the first pick of the draft. That's a little different than what we deal with now. Um, so we've come a long way in 34 years. So this was just a little tale about how an iconic sports commissioner here in the United States, you know, we, we look very highly upon um, David Stern here, at least I do, in terms of growing the game, how he in a small way helped VFL survive, which then helped the AFL thrive in just his little small way. I think that's pretty cool. Now, the only the only question I still have here is if I could just get someone to explain to me how zoning works in terms of which clubs, which areas teams are able to tap into for players. So if you've got any idea how zoning works in the AFL and you want to come on the show, I would love to have you on and talk about it and interview you and figure out how this works. I've read up on it. To me, it's rather confusing. This, you know, we could go through an episode or six. Um, on how this works, because to me it looks rather complicated. Okay, now I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here. We're 
pushing 45 minutes now. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you've enjoyed my rather shallow dive into how that future NBA commissioner played a small part in keeping the, the VFL viable. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this. It did, took a lot of reading, a lot of digging. Um, and I honestly, folks, I cannot tell you just how much I appreciate you tuning into my show. The fact that you're listening is extraordinarily humbling. And if you're enjoying my podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd consider sharing it with a friend. You can find links to the show in the show notes. So feel free to copy one of them and share them. The Apple one would probably work the best or Spotify because uh, those are things that more people tend to have. But there are all kinds of different ones that are there. And one last thing before I finish up tonight. I've had a poll up on Twitter and on my a Yank on the Footy page on Facebook asking people if they'd be interested in a, uh, a sticker from the podcast. Uh, you can see the logo if you, when you go to the to look at the episodes. You can see the logo with the little guy with the ball. And Well, first of all, that, that little guy does not look anything like me. Okay. Doesn't, I look more like the ball, quite frankly. Um, but I've had about 25 people respond between the two platforms, and about 70% of them said yes that they would be interested. Now, if you are in Australia or you're overseas somewhere else, it would probably end up costing about three to four dollars to send you one of these stickers. So if it's something that you would be interested in, you could send me a note on Twitter or on the podcast's Facebook page, a yank on the footy. If you search that out, you could leave me a note on there because I think the two polls are getting ready to close this evening. And let me know. Now, I've not set anything up um, like a PayPal or a Patreon or anything like that for collecting money for the sticker. This is that's not you know that's not that's not there at this point right now. You know, ultimately, you know, I'm looking at the possibility of trying to find some advertisers for my podcast, but uh, I'm having fun with it right now, and the advertising part is not necessarily first and foremost. Um, I just know that if I'm going to be mailing out 25, 50, 100 stickers, that could get to be very expensive very quickly. So it's basically just helping to cover the cost of, of the postage. So once I f gauge how many people would be interested in this, I'll go ahead and set up some sort of a, uh, a conduit to allow that to happen where I would get everybody's address as well. And then I'll get those stickers printed up. I've, I've looked at uh, a couple different places to get them printed. And, um, I mean, quite frankly, I kind of want to get one printed just to put it on my own car. You know, I have the bumper sticker for the college that my daughter goes to. I have two stickers on there that say that I'm a United States Navy veteran. And that I'm a United States Navy dad because my son is an officer in the in the U.S. Navy. And then I've got two Geelong Cats stickers on my back window as well. I would love to have a sticker of my very own podcast on there. I think that would be pretty cool, quite frankly. So, ladies and gents, I am going to go ahead and wrap up here now. I appreciate you listening. And don't forget, you can find all of the episodes of this podcast at yankonthefooty.podbean.com. And you can also find it on your favorite podcast provider. And now that you've listened, I hope you'll consider giving me a review. Let me know and how let you letting me know how I'm doing. Okay. Let me know let me know what I need to work on, what I'm doing well. 
okay, and lets the podcast host know as well. And don't forget, you can reach out to me at a yank on the footy at gmail.com. I check my email every day. I would love to hear from you. You can reach me on on Twitter at yank underscore on. You can send me a message there. I check my Twitter several times a day as well. And you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at a yank on the footy. I want to thank Mr. Joseph McDade for the use of two of his great pieces of music. Mr. McDade creates some fantastic tunes, and I'm using the pieces Elevation and Backplate. And you can find his music at josephmcdade.com slash music. Again, Mr. McDade, thanks a lot for your hard work and your wonderful music. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you. Because while we're fans of our teams deep down, we're fans of a game that we all love, and that's the game of footy. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to consider sharing this podcast with your friends. I truly appreciate you listening. And may your dribble kick never hit the post. I'll catch you later. This has been episode 10 of A Yank on the Footy. Don't forget that you can reach me at yank underscore on on Twitter or to yank on the footy at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at A Yank on the Footy. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening and please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. <laughs>